So Thomas Friedman has written a piece about Hamad bin Salman for the New York Times. It's not spin until the mustache speaks. Brian Whitaker described it as a press release for the Saudi regime written by Thomas Friedman. So as you know, we try our best to demystify complex and hard-to-understand topics on this podcast, but we can't explain Thomas Friedman's status as an intellectual. For this episode, we're going to stick to easier topics, such as Middle East politics. This is Iyad al-Baghdadi and Ahmed Gatnash, and this is the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast. This is only our second episode, and before we get into it, I'd like to extend my deepest thanks to everyone who listened to our pilot episode and who gave us feedback. It's just amazing to see how many people were as excited about this as we were. We promise you that we're listening, and we will be listening, and we're taking all of your suggestions to heart. I want to ask you about the duration. We've started with an hour-long format, and some of you have really liked it because it allows this deep dive into the topic. But others have asked us to go shorter. I mean, maybe stick with the original plan of around 40 minutes. What do you think? Let us know. So here's a reminder about what the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast is and isn't. It is not a news analysis podcast. At least it's not your usual one. What this podcast seeks to do is give you an anti-authoritarian angle on world events. We look at the news and then we ask, what does this teach us about dictatorial behavior and tricks? What do these news mean for the struggle for liberation and social justice? Why should you care? As such, we don't really chase the news cycle here, although we do refer to events and try to demystify them. Our topic for today is going to be a carryover from the previous discussion in which we spoke about the current Saudi transition. In the last episode, we spoke about the internal factors, and today we're going to kind of zoom out, both geographically and chronologically, and try to make some sense of the, the sectarianization and the warmongering rhetoric that the region is seeing. So there have been some massive changes going on in the Arab world since 2013, and a lot of it has centered on the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Ever since Barack Obama made it an objective of his foreign policy to try and withdraw from the region and encourage these two powers to take responsibility, they've been fighting it out. They turned Syria into a proxy war, they're controlling the politics of Iraq, They've caused incalculable damage to Yemen and now the Lebanon crisis. Let's go into history first. Why is Saudi Arabia seen as this essential regional hegemon and power center? It hasn't always been so, has it? Well, Saudi Arabia's status as an important and central Arab state, it's a very recent phenomenon. It's a 20th century, really, phenomenon. Some might say 21st century phenomenon. Of course, we know that Islam started in Saudi Arabia or in the region that today became Saudi Arabia 15 centuries ago. However, at that point, very quickly, before we hit the first century after Hijra, after the rise of Islam, the capital, the power centers of the Islamic world had already shifted into the Levant and into Iraq. Of course, the, the Hajj and the Hijaz and you know, the Holy Shrines were always important for spiritual reasons, and we can also argue for political reasons, like legitimacy. However, it was not really a heavy player when it comes to the empires and when it comes to the balance of power in the Middle East. Once we come to the 20th century, the modern state of Saudi Arabia rises, immense oil wealth follows, and suddenly, and of course, at the same time, you have this collapse of a lot of traditional Arab power centers like Damascus, Baghdad, Cairo, etc., all of these countries that used to be power centers and as well as cultural power centers, centers also for soft power. They kind of were under occupation from foreign powers for some time. 
but also right after that they were taken over by military dictatorships and for that reason they weren't really doing their part when it comes to being heavy players on the regional scene. As a result of that, Saudi Arabia stepped up and Saudi Arabia became, or you know, at least tried to become, the power center of the Islamic world or the Arab world. Now, of course, as we will explore in our discussion, it hasn't really worked out so well for Saudi Arabia. So basically, Saudi Arabia or the entire Arabian Peninsula was a backwater for a thousand years and as late as the 19th, even the early 20th century when Arabs looked for direction. They would look towards Cairo, Beirut, Baghdad, Damascus. That was changing with the impoverishment of these states and their mismanagement first by colonialism and then by military regimes. And when Saudi Arabia struck oil, it had one of the lowest human development indicators in the Arab world, but that was the beginning of its massive rise. By comparison, Iran has a 2,500-year civilization. If anything, they only got slightly weaker with the onset of the modern nation-state but they stayed a regional power center until relatively modern times. And the narrative right now is that these guys are fighting it out and Saudi Arabia isn't doing as well as it could. They're basically failing to achieve the levels of influence you would think someone with that wealth could have. This is disregarding the historical angle and just looking at today. Wealth is power and they're not really actualizing it. Why is their foreign policy failing to achieve influence? Well, you've mentioned a kind of narrative which is very interesting, which is raising this question. I mean, Saudi Arabia, by certain measures, should be a lot more successful than it already is, and it should be a lot more powerful than it already is. Given that it's true, for example, that it used to have very low human development index like 100 years ago, but that's history. The literacy rates when it comes to youth, for example, is almost 100%. Education system, of course, needs to be improved, but at the same time, you know, you're talking about a wealthy country which spends an enormous percentage of its GDP on its military, so it should be a very powerful nation. So there's the question, why isn't it more successful when it comes to its foreign policy? And it's true, I mean, I completely agree with you that, yeah, its foreign policy seems to be in dire straits. It has watched Iran encroach on the region, basically support and prop up its ally, its central ally in the Levant, Bashar al-Assad, And then you have these side battles in Lebanon and Yemen. But at the same time, Saudi Arabia, while this is all going on, it also opens a front against Qatar and the Muslim Brotherhood. It gets involved in 2013, gets involved in Egypt, in Egypt's politics. And it seems that none of these things are really working out for it. It's absolutely true that, yes, the foreign policy angle seems to be in disarray. The rest of the podcast, of course, we are going to explore different facets of why this is so. So by contrast, Iran seems to be having a very successful foreign policy at the moment. They've extended their control across Iraq to Syria. Their proxy, Hezbollah, basically runs Lebanon. And they're expanding to Africa as well. The two countries seem so similar. They're both theocratic authoritarian oil states which dominate their populations in the name of religion. Iran is nominally a republic, but in practice that makes absolutely no difference. Where are the differences? Let me comment about the differences between those two regimes when it comes to the key differences which are relevant to our discussion about their foreign policy successes and failures. And I can think of two or three main themes here. I think it's important to note that while Saudi Arabia has always had 
a warm working relationship with the West, Iran's history with the West is not so friendly. The current Iranian regime is very anti-West. Even as it tries to engage the West, you know, with the recent Iran deal, the rhetoric, especially inside the country, continues to be very anti-West, so that's one thing. It means, of course, that Saudi Arabia has this cachet. It has this legitimacy, this international relations. I mean, I can't imagine, for example, Thomas Friedman writing a piece like the one that he wrote about the Iranian regime. So they have all these lobbyists, they have all of these ex-politicians on their payroll, etc., which Iran does not really have to the same degree. Of course, Iran also tries to play the same game. So that's maybe one facet, attitude towards the West. So about this attitude towards the West, one difference I notice is that with Iran, it's explicitly the people in charge themselves who hate the West. It's the Ayatollahs who are the rulers who call America the Great Satan. In Saudi Arabia, they nominally keep this separation between the royal family and the religious establishment. And it's always been portrayed as a religious establishment who are anti-Western and extremely conservative and dogmatic, etc. Well, yeah, I mean, the religious establishment in Saudi Arabia have engaged in this kind of anti-Western rhetoric themselves, but they also know where to stop. They know their limits because they know there are certain lines they can't cross. However, when it comes to the people themselves, the Iranian people, because of their long isolation, they're really craving engagement with other people, especially also with the West, because they were cut off from it for such a long time. So the people actually don't have this problem. It's mainly, as you said, the ruling elite. Okay, so you mentioned two key differences. One of them is their attitudes towards the West. The other? Well, the second key difference, I think this is the crucial difference. It's that Saudi Arabia, for most of its history, its 20th century history, has not been a revolutionary regime. It's a reactionary regime. The Iranian regime, the Islamic Republic of Iran, is a revolutionary regime. It came via a revolution and it continues to speak about this revolution. Meanwhile, the Saudi Arabian regime is a reactionary regime. It's basically a very conservative monarchy. And I think this is very important to consider when we talk about the behavior of these two powers on the world stage and how they approach a foreign policy conflict. So Iran's overall objectives are basically we want to overthrow stuff, we want revolutions, we want to export this and that. Whereas Saudi Arabia, you could say, the pinnacle of their aspirations is continuity. We want stuff to stay the same. Well, let me run you down, for example, 20th century foreign policy in Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia comes to be in the 1930s. In the 1940s and 1950s, a lot of its foreign policy is directed against the Hashemites in Jordan, Iraq, and Syria. Because, first of all, the Hashemites themselves, they came from Hejaz. So they were defeated by al-Saud in order for Saudi Arabia to be, quote-unquote, united. So this is the first phase. In the 1960s, you have the rise of left-wing movements in the Arab world. So Saudi Arabia, I believe it was in the 1960s, that it actually allies with the Mutawakkilite monarchy, or the imamate in Yemen, who are Zaydis. They're Zaydi Shias, they're not Sunnis. Allies with them versus, I think it was at the time, socialist revolutionaries aided by Egypt, by Egypt's Nasser. At the same time, it also aids the Ibadi monarchy in, in Oman against, again, socialist rebels in the Far. And of course, it's trying to work as a counterbalance versus Arab nationalism, again, because Arab nationalism had kind of this revolutionary angle. And then in the 1970s, you have the rise of Islamism, especially in in Egypt and also in Iran. And that's where you have this shift in Saudi Arabian foreign policy from 
a very reactionary foreign policy, which is basically against any kind of revolutionary movement, regardless who it is, it shifts to a support for Salafi Jihad. But to sum up, for most of its 20th century history, Saudi Arabia was actually very reactionary. It was counter-revolutionary. And it kind of forgot about this counter-revolutionary nature maybe in the 1980s because of uh, regional events. But then it went back to the same counter-revolutionary behavior with the Arab Spring. As for the Iranian regime, the Iranian regime comes into power in 1979 and it adopts a pan-Islamic rhetoric which talks about opposition to the West and this project to export the revolution, create Islamic regimes everywhere in the Middle East and promote a kind of pan-Islamism or you know, Islamic unity. So it actually supports a lot of different groups, Sunni and Shia. Initially, the Iranian regime was not sectarianizing the conflict, it was basically talking about pan-Islamism. Basically, it became cynical at some point that it's probably easy for, for this rhetoric to work on fellow Shias than on Sunnis. And that's when the sectarianization hits another level. So to sum up, the Iranian regime has always been revolutionary. And because it's revolutionary, it has a certain behavior that we'll come to explore a little bit more. While the Saudi regime was not really a revolutionary regime, it was quite the opposite. It was a counter-revolutionary regime, which means it doesn't exactly have this kind of firebrand ideology which can inspire masses. It's more of this hybrid ideology, which is kind of jihadi Salafism, which actually, even though it had kind of its roots in Saudi Arabia in the 1980s and 90s, it was not a tool that served Saudi Arabia, but rather eventually it became a force that attacked Saudi Arabia. You know, Al-Qaeda and ISIS, etc. they abhor the Saudi regime and they, they want to bring it down. So when we compare Iran's successful use of proxies in the conflict it's involved in in the Middle East with Saudi Arabia, we're actually comparing apples with oranges because the Iran regime is fundamentally built to create proxies and fight proxy conflicts with them, whereas Saudi Arabia, by its very nature, doesn't do that. It's like asking why your lawnmower is not as fast as a bicycle. That's because it's a lawnmower. It doesn't do the same thing as a bicycle. The machinery itself is built to achieve different objectives. A revolutionary regime will have this behavior that it would be building long-term relationships with allies. It would be doing a lot of capacity building. It would be building proxies over a long period of time because that's what a revolutionary regime does. Meanwhile, a counter-revolutionary regime is not really invested in all of that. Its foreign policy looks different. And I think this is something that a lot of analysts have missed. Basically, they're talking about how Saudi Arabia has been terrible to its allies. Well, because it's not a revolutionary regime, they don't actually foster this kind of al militant alliances. I think another factor to consider here is that because of its extreme counter-revolutionary nature, Saudi Arabia over many decades has collected a lot of enemies in its own region, which means that when it stands against a revolutionary wave, such as standing against the Arab Spring, for example, in 2011, it creates a lot of resentment and it creates a lot of enemies. And this is a problem that has come back to bite it. Now, another factor to this dynamic, the fact that Iran is a revolutionary regime, while the Saudi Arabian regime is actually reactionary, or has been for most of the 20th century and the 21st century, is the fact that the Iranian regime has this ideology that it can sell, that it can promote. On the other hand, the Saudi regime does not really have 
an ideology which is tied to the state, tied to the regime itself. Of course, there's Salafism, but we can easily argue that the Salafism that they tried to spread kind of backfired. Because again, when you look at jihadism, jihadism is basically revolutionary Salafism, and it has not actually been something which is to Saudi Arabia's benefit. It has been basically an enemy of Saudi Arabia. So the fact is that when you are a reactionary regime, what can you get people excited about? What can you get revolutionary masses or, you know, or a proxy excited about? The fact that nothing should change? Yay, let's unite to keep everything the same. Exactly. So there isn't a lot of excitement there to talk about young people like in Egypt and in Syria, etc., getting really excited about jumping up to be Saudi Arabia's proxies. What is Saudi Arabia standing for, for Arab youth to actually say, hey, yeah, we want to be on your team? Other than that, I believe that Saudi Arabia, because of its foreign policy history, it seems to me that it has a very transactional kind of relationship with its allies. I think maybe the relationship with Sisi, with the Egyptian regime, with the current Egyptian regime, actually kind of exemplifies this. Because there is this assumption that we're going to pay your bills, we're going to take care of you, and you're going to do what we want. It's like an incredibly rich person who lives an isolated lifestyle and has no friends. And everyone he comes across, he just wants to treat as a servant. I call it the kafil mentality. And the kafil basically is the system in Saudi Arabia and a lot of the Gulf states where if you want to work in these countries or if you want to move to these countries, you have to have a sponsor. You have to be sponsored by a local businessman or company, etc. So there is the sponsorship model where they think we have to promote allies by making them our clients in a way. We want to promote alliances by finding these guys, paying them, and getting them to do our bidding. But it doesn't really work when you're talking about the world stage, when you're talking about geopolitics, you're talking about other states. Like, for example, Egypt, even though the Saudi and Saudi and Emirati regimes also have paid a lot of money to keep Sisi's regime afloat, when it came to their support, Sisi's support when it comes to, for example, the, the crisis with Hezbollah or the crisis with Lebanon, he wasn't anywhere to be found. In fact, he actually said it's not the right time to do this right now because in the end, he runs the regime himself and he looks at his own interests first. He's not going to do something against his own interests for the sake of Saudi Arabia, even though he might be very grateful for all the help that they gave him. So there is this kind of clientelism, I think, doesn't work. Well, the way you build a functional, sustainable, long-term alliance in international policy is to convince the other country that you guys share a future, you share a destiny. And as we benefit, you benefit and vice versa. And therefore, you know, we should help each other out, which is very different from saying, look, I need you to do this for me and I'm going to pay you, do it. The counter-revolutionary axis does not really have an inspiring vision. They don't have a vision for a future of the region. They're mostly concerned with the preservation of their own rule and the survival of their own regimes. And because of this lack of vision, you have this thing about Vision 2030, but Vision 2030 is a Saudi vision. It's not a regional vision. Why should someone in Syria or in Yemen or in Jordan or in Qatar or in Egypt get excited about Saudi 2030 vision? That's the point here. They don't have a vision for the region. This reminds me of a section from um, the Obama Doctrine by Jeffrey Goldberg. Well, he basically said that Iran and Saudi Arabia need to share the Middle East. That was why he wanted to step back. He thought they were freeloading. And, you know, these guys are fighting. Learn to share your toys. Which, implicitly, he's basically saying the Middle East is toys for these two governments. What do you mean by share the Middle East? Lebanon is not a pie that we can cut between you guys. Syria is not a piece of cake. Forget Lebanon. I mean, they're talking about our societies in the end. They're talking about us. I don't want to be ruled by Saudi hegemon. I don't want to be ruled by an Iranian hegemon. If, you, if it really comes down to it, you go to speak to people. 
and you give them the options, you lay down the options, of course they're going to pick their own liberation. Of course, forget about the people who are actually direct beneficiaries of the Iranian regime or the Saudi regime, of course that's a different case. And forgot, of course, and there's also this employment of nationalistic narratives and sectarian narratives. Again, these are all narratives used to get people to fall in line behind you. But in the end, the actual benefit, the actual interest of the people of the Middle East, not just the Middle East, but really across the world, is best served through economic integration, development, solidarity, human rights. This is actually what grows economies. This is what actually promotes international peace. People's interests are not best served by war after war in order for you know this regime or that regime to last longer and to be able to extract and steal for a longer time. It's the same kind of mentality of saying Christopher Columbus discovered America. There were an estimated 100 million inhabitants of the Americas at the time. He didn't discover it as he wasn't the first man in America. It's just an assumption that he was the first man who mattered in America. He was the first person who has agency in America because the natives don't have agency. At the time, they believed they don't even have souls. There was an actual debate about whether inferior peoples had souls at the time in Europe. The conversation kind of reminded me of the article that I co-wrote with Mariam Nayeb Yazdi, who is the Iranian-Canadian human rights activist. And we wrote this piece in June for Foreign Policy magazine. They wanted us to give our own take on the mess in the Middle East. At the time, I think it was the height of the Qatar crisis. We put our heads together and we wrote a piece. It was titled The Middle East Crisis Factory. She's Iranian and she's writing as someone who studies and understands the Iranian regime. And I'm Arab and I'm talking in terms of the Arab regimes. We laid it down very clearly that these regimes, forget about the chess pieces. I dislike this kind of chess piece analysis where they're like, look at this piece over there, look at this piece over there. These guys are winning here, these guys. Forget that, you have to zoom out and really look at the big picture and realize that because this regional order is dominated by dictatorships, it will always be an incubator for instability. It's always going to be a crisis factory so long the regional order itself is dominated by these kind of regimes, dictatorial regimes, because they have to create crisis in order for them to continue to extract consent from their own population. And this does not serve the interest of the people of the region. It does not serve their interest to always hate each other and to always fight each other. This reminds me of a section from the Obama Doctrine by Jeffrey Goldberg, where he mentions Obama citing a scene from The Dark Knight, which is an awesome film. But he basically makes an analogy with ISIS. And he says, so this is Obama saying, there's a scene in the beginning with the gang leaders of Gotham meeting. And these guys, basically, these thugs, have the city divided up between them. And everyone has their own turf and they have a system between them. Everyone knows which area he runs, and there's a kind of order. And then the Joker comes in and lights the whole city on fire. And he basically says, ISIS is the Joker, because it has the capacity to set the entire region on fire and destroy the regional order, which is true, but it paints a very revealing and ugly picture of Obama and many US administrations before him and European administrations as well. It's not like he's unique, but it paints a picture of him as being the corrupt city official who deals with these criminal thugs because they make it convenient for him. So they're terrible, but you know, at least they keep the order and they benefit They're bastards, me. but they're at least our bastards. When you mentioned the Dark Knight, I actually thought that Obama was referring to a different one, and I thought, how come he didn't refer to the scene where the Joker sits with Batman, and Batman asks him, why do you want to kill me? And the Joker you know, cracks up laughing, and he's like, why do I want to kill you? What will I do without you? You complete me. This is the point that people need to understand. ISIS and the tyrants 
I apologize for all Batman fans for referring to Batman as the analog of the tyrants. But then again, the relationship between ISIS, the terrorists, and the tyrants is actually, they're in the same ecosystem. It's kind of a symbiotic relationship. They complete each other. What will one do without the other? How can you continuously justify those extreme security measures if there's no threat of terrorism? You need a terrorist in order for you to rule in the name of fighting terrorism. And at the same time, the terrorists, what will they do if there's no tyrant to rouse people up and recruit people and say, you have to join us because we're the only ones who can face this tyrant? In the end, the people of the region are the ones who get blown up by tyrants and terrorists or foreign intervention after another. And the result is, you know, a kind of vicious cycle. I mean, I'm kind of giving a very quick summary to our book, The Vicious Triangle, which we're currently writing. And this is like, going back to the first analogy, Thomas Friedman has just gone into Gotham and come out and written a glowing piece about one of the mafia heads and said, you know, this guy is running his patch so good, nobody dares not pay their protection money on time. And he's making sure that only his guys are committing crimes on the streets. There's no unexpected crimes. And there's a quota for murders. And he's got the crime scene locked down. They're killing, but they're doing it in a very clean way. And they're extracting money, but they're doing it in a very systematic way. And that's exactly what they want, because Obama, there's literally a quote from him in that piece where he says, all I need in the Middle East is a few smart autocrats. I wonder how Obama would have reacted to MBS. I mean, if he's looking for a smart autocrat, maybe this is the guy. You really have to be naive not to see the really destructive effects of Obama's years on the Middle East. And then he has the nerve to say something like, if only everyone could be like the Scandinavians, this would all be easy. So sorry to disappoint Obama on behalf of the Arab world. I'm speaking from Scandinavia, and I'm wondering how tolerant Scandinavians can be if there's a suicide bombing in their market every week. If their next-door neighbors, basically if each of the Nordic states is basically a dictatorship, and each of them is plotting against the other, and if they're underground uh, torture dungeons in Oslo and Stockholm, how tolerant are they going to be? That's the thing, that's the contradiction. He says, all I need in the Middle East is a few smart autocrats, and then he says, if only everyone could be more like the Scandinavians, this would be easy. So he wants to resent us and say it's our fault for not being democratic and liberal and civilized. But he also wants to have his smart autocrats. You can't have it both ways. So we spoke a little about teams earlier. Team Saudi regime and Team Iranian regime. Obviously we're on neither team. We find both repulsive. But even disregarding the reactionary Saudi Arabian regime, Iranian expansionism is objectively a problem in the Middle East. They're interfering very brazenly in other nations' politics. They're being very aggressive. They're backing incredibly destructive tyrants. They're the reason Bashar al-Assad has survived in Syria. What should be done about this? I mean, obviously, Saudi Arabia have taken a crisis and made it 10 times worse. But if you were a sensible Arab world leader, how would you go about countering Iran? I want to point here to the fact that the Iranian regime itself does not seem to have a clear end game in the region. Of course, they have been doing very well, and they kind of got their own little empire there. But at the same time, I'm thinking that they might win the war but lose the peace. My argument here is based upon three main points. The first is that they kind of helped Bashar al-Assad survive. So they have Syria now. What are they going to do with it? Is it going to be more conflict? Are they going to reconstruct everything that has been destroyed? Of course not. Are they going to expend the resources to keep the peace over there? That's quite an economic drain. That's not coming with any clear benefit. And this leads me to the second point, which is that by acting in this very aggressive fashion, 
there is a, a real fear that they kind of damaged one of the assumptions of the Iran deal itself. The Iran deal was supposed to be this deal that brings the Iranian regime out of its isolation, allows it to engage world powers, allows an economic boom in Iran. I'm wondering here, of course, uh, I mean, this might be a little premature, but I'm wondering here whether Iran's very aggressive foreign policy would scare certain Western powers from actually going the extra mile and uh, completely normalizing economic relations with Iran to the point of making a difference economically. Making a difference, of course, for Iranian society, but also to Iranian clients. My third point is really about whether the Iranian axis has burnt a lot of bridges when it comes to creating a lot of enemies in the middle of the Arab region, basically through creating a lot of refugees, crushing a lot of lives, through Bashar al-Assad and through basically their support for this terrible mass murderer, I'm wondering whether they have lost the goodwill of a lot of a big chunk of the Middle East population and how that would actually work out in the future. Well, it's like they've basically freaked out everyone in the region with the incredible level of aggression that they've displayed more than anything anybody expected a couple of years ago. And it's also like the mask has been slipping under pressure. They've revealed their natural state. They had this good cop, bad cop routine where first you had Ahmadinejad and everyone could see that he was crazy. Then you have this so-called reformist Rouhani elected and this act of, you know, we're fighting against the regressives, we're trying to open up to the West. Here's our reformist face, here's the foreign minister Zarif who wears a Western suit rather than a turban and he's all moderate and he's going to come to the UN and do negotiations. And then in the last few months, this guy has been retweeting pro-Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps messages and, you know, saying some really extreme stuff that you wouldn't expect, like the mask has slipped. On the good cop, bad cop routine, you could say that Saudi Arabia are doing the same thing as well. Hamid bin Salman is basically telling the world, look, it's either me or it's back to the clerics, and you don't want the clerics, do you? So why not have this quote-unquote Western-educated, moderate, reformist, young, blah, blah, blah? Well, I, I think in the case of the Saudi narrative, it's more like, it's us or chaos. And you better trust me, because if it's not me, it's going to be collapse. This is the same kind of narrative that we're used to with Sisi, for example, saying that I'm the only one who's stopping this collapse, and I'm the only one who's fighting terrorism, etc. But, you know, unlike Sisi, this is coming with a very different kind of transformation plan, when he's actually saying that we're going to liberalize the economy, I'm going to liberate women, etc., He's hitting different buttons when it comes to Western audiences. Well, it's me or chaos. The bit that they don't say is because I've damn well made sure of it. And Mohammed bin Salman has made sure of it because he's locked up economic reformists. He's locked up moderate theologians. He's locked up activists. Everyone who could be an alternative to that chaos. So whereas before you had options A, B, C, D and E, he's now made sure that only him and Chaos are still on the menu. It would be great if he actually took Chaos off the menu, but that doesn't serve him. Uh, this is actually one of the key narratives that's being promoted right now by certain Saudi-funded think tanks in DC. And there is some truth to it, which is the fact that Saudi Arabia cannot transform. I mean, the regime itself, if it's not for someone who's basically doing this top-down, it's probably not going to reform. It's not going to be possible to actually make all of those changes because it's this big behemoth and it's going to resist change. We're coming back to your point again, which is that if you actually want to create this change, you want to get over the inertia of the establishment itself, you kind of need to open up to the people. 
you kind of need to speak to them. This is one of the things that actually kind of pissed me off with the Thomas Friedman piece. The fact that instead of speaking to his own people, he's speaking to Thomas Friedman, to a U.S. journalist, who is going to spread this, who's going to write this on the New York Times. It's like he doesn't even see the need to speak to his own people. He doesn't actually see them. This brings us perfectly to, I'm so sorry to have to shift the conversation to this. It just lowers it from a, a quite intellectual level to something pathetic. But Tom Friedman's article, he ended by saying something like, you'd be a fool not to root for him. And I read that and thought, why on earth would I want to root for the guy who is imprisoning reformists? You know, there would be many more ways Saudi Arabia could get out of its problems if they could make full use of the creativity of their population and their abilities rather than jailing them all and saying, well, looks like Mohammed bin Salman is the only one who can get us out of here. The narrative that he has to be dictatorial because there's no other way to reform in the kingdom and then calling this Saudi Arabia's Arab Spring, which adds insult to the injury. This is actually what kind of stung. The Arab Spring is really about empowerment of the people to stand up to their own dictators. If anything, Mohammed bin Salman is writing the Saudi people out of the reform formula. It's like he doesn't even see them. So he actually goes to Thomas Friedman instead of speaking to his own people. It's like the people who I need to explain this to is not the Saudi people. It is U.S. policymakers. When you are facing an ideological foe, especially a religious ideological foe, I believe there's only two narratives that can be really employed against Iranian expansion. You can either use the sectarian narrative, and we know where that ends. The sectarian narrative ends us with ISIS. Or you can use a narrative of human rights and liberation, a social justice narrative, a narrative that says that we're against both the tyrants and the terrorists and the imperialists. The problem with that is that can Saudi Arabia actually adopt that? Because this narrative would be as threatening to the Saudi regime as it is to the Iranian regime. And of course, this was the biggest mistake they ever did. They stood against the Arab Spring and stood against the indigenous movement for rights and liberation. And because they did that, they can never make the pro-human rights argument. So they crushed the native reform and created a vacuum. And that vacuum is what sucked in external actors like the Iran regime, like ISIS. Exactly. Nature abhors a vacuum. And now they're creating narratives of division and warmongering. They're creating enmities between people. They're destroying societies. And they're, they're doing stuff that's going to last for an incredibly long time. What's happening in Yemen is not something that people are going to get over for a few months after it ends. It's going to shape an entire generation. The Qatar crisis, they've stooped to such low levels in a region where they share a language, they share a culture. It's not like there's any future in which the two countries won't be neighbors. Instead, they've used every trick in the book from war on terror rhetoric to fake media and lies to making mocking songs to inciting tribal problems. The Saudi method of fighting this war has been destructive in a sense that instead of building allies, they're going about destroying existing power centers around them, causing a lot of destruction to infrastructure, causing a lot of destruction to long-standing relationships. You know, Yemen is always going to be next to Saudi Arabia, and you've caused a tremendous humanitarian catastrophe over there. And you're going to have to deal with that. That instability is going to be there for a very long time, right on your border. You're going to have to deal with that. So instead of resisting or doing its foreign policy by building alternative structures that it can rely upon, it's going ar around destroying a lot of things. 
And I, I just wonder, when did that ever work in this kind of context? It really pours cold water on Mohammed bin Salman's claims to be a reformer of Islam and taking Islam back to the moderate path. There's a lot of rhetoric, but when you look at it at the end of the day, there is a social context in which extreme ideas thrive. And we saw that after the American wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. When you go into a country and you destroy its infrastructure, you make it so that a generation of kids can't go to school, so that a generation of kids have PTSD, have seen bombs drop around them, have seen family members killed, no family has escaped, those kinds of scars, and there's incredibly deep resentment. You can do whatever you want in terms of building new fancy centers to reevaluate hadith, but at the end of the day, you just confirmed to a lot of people some very ugly stuff about human nature. And, you know, what you've done here really is, first of all, as you mentioned, you have created perfect societies in which extremist ideas thrive. Extremist ideas really do well in social contexts which are overcome by conflict, a lot of instability, a lot of destruction. I mean, these are also Muslim countries. So in the end, you're kind of trying to claim religious legitimacy and say that we're going to be the center of tolerance and moderation in the Islamic world. But you haven't really acted very moderately. You haven't really acted in a tolerant way to your own neighbors. My main criticism here and my main problem with the MBS approach, even if we acknowledge for a moment, we say, fine, the only way he can do this is by going against his own family because it's a behemoth. He has to kind of take the bull by the horns, so to speak. It still doesn't make sense that you are writing your own people out of the formula. You're not speaking to them. You're not opening any kind of conversations with them. You're going and speaking to Western journalists and Western policymakers. At the same time, what does it say about Saudi foreign policy when you see this kind of dance of normalization with Israel, which is very unpopular with the Muslim masses, and at the same time he goes and also praises Donald Trump, saying that you know, he's the right man for the job, when it's very clear that you know, Donald Trump doesn't like Muslims, and Muslims all over the world actually don't disagree that Trump looks and acts like an Islamophobe. What does it say about your attitude towards the people? What does it say about your claim that you're the king of the people and you, know, you want to actually use your own popularity with the young to implement all of these reforms? What does it say to the, the rest of the masses in the Middle East that you're actually complaining that you, you guys are not stepping up, you're not helping us out? So in essence, Mohammed bin Salman basically came along and took control very quickly of the organs of the state and sidelined all of his competitors and enemies and then said, look, I'm reforming this thing and your input is not welcome. I'm getting rid of corruption, but your input isn't welcome. I'm changing the economy, but when people spoke about it, he said, your input isn't welcome, and he actually jailed some of them. I'm going to reform Islam, but then when some reformist clerics started speaking, he said, again, your input isn't welcome. Who is this for then? It's like he's treating the country as his own private property. And, you know, these guys just happen to be nuisances in the way. Well, this is exactly it. This is really about the survival of the Saudi regime, rather than improving the lot of average Saudis. Of course, in the process of that, the lot of a certain class of Saudis is going to probably improve. But at the same time, political rights are going to take a back seat. And Saudi Arabia might end up becoming a more repressive place, even in my everyday life. So this whole episode with Saudi Arabia is a big middle finger in the face of anyone who said that these oil shekhtums bring stability. And it's a big validation of our contention that these kind of regimes are always only at best a few months away from massive instability. And they're actually incubators of instability. They always appear stable until the moment before they collapse. 
and probably part of the problem with silencing free speech is you don't get to see the warning signs. You don't get the people who are telling you that something is going wrong. You don't get natural course corrections when someone proposes a better idea and it wins. And it's proof that we need free speech. The recent thing with Friedman citing this 28-year-old US-educated Saudi woman who cannot tell him whatever he wants to hear, the fact is that you're only listening to one side. You've just met them. You don't speak the language. You don't know the culture. And the fact is that you're only listening to the people who are able to speak. Every voice which is a dissenting voice, you're not even hearing it. According to the people who agree with me, I'm right. <laughs> I mean, it's like kind of like that. It is the consensus opinion of, of everyone who agrees with me that I'm correct. This means that you miss the warning signs. It was embarrassing enough that they actually missed the big warning signs when it came to the Arab Spring in 2011. But the same behavior seems to be institutional. It's not something that has corrected. It's the same mentality which is still running. A mentality that does not see native agency, doesn't really see the people. It only sees elites. And even those elites themselves, they're not exactly elites by Western standards. We're not talking about people who are technocrats and academics and intellectuals. You're talking about ruling families in the end. Some of them only see some kind of economic indicator or they only see state structures and when they're giving recommendations for stability, what they're saying is this is what you do to keep your government stable. It doesn't matter if you have a terrible government which has destroyed the country. It doesn't matter if you're extractive and you're terribly repressive. We're reforming to protect the government. You don't actually see the society. You don't see the human lives which are underneath this, which are being downtrodden. So, of course, your analysis is not saying this is what you need to do to do better by the people. You don't even know about the people. You don't care. You don't see them. How can Saudi Arabia actually win, then? What should they do here? For Saudi Arabia to actually win this battle against the Iranian regime, it has to be as different from the Iranian regime as possible, and that's not happening. Because both of them are still dictatorships, and you can't trick the people for too long. You can trick them for some time, but you cannot trick them on the long term. I mean, I remember when I was doing the Q-Berlin conference. And I remember that I think I annoyed a few people because I seem to be obsessed with human rights. I seem to be obsessed with authoritarianism and tyranny. They're talking about the future of humanity, the different trends that are going to shape the future, etc. I keep bringing back the discussion to this. And I think a few people didn't understand, but it is a huge problem. And a lot of unsustainabilities are really linked to that. So long there's inequality in terms of gender inequality. We're talking about inequality in terms of economic inequality. But there is also an inequality of human dignity, which is very important and very sharp. And it's a source of a lot of conflict. It's a source of a lot of the conflicts that we see today. Okay, let me paint a picture. Imagine you live in a place where at any moment you could be thrown in jail for nothing. Now imagine if you spent your life working really hard and you bought like a really nice shorefront house for your family and then some powerful connected person likes it and decides that he wants it. He comes up to you and you tell him, actually, no, I don't want to sell. I, I worked really hard for this. So he pulls a few strings and gets you accused of something ridiculous like corruption and you get thrown in jail and nobody investigates the truth, it just happens. And meanwhile, he just takes over your property. It differs from state to state. In some countries, they don't actually have to accuse you of anything. You just piss off the wrong emir and you're in prison. Case in point is your story. For listeners who don't know, Yed was jailed in 2013 and then expelled from the UAE, and to this day, we don't know the reason behind it. 2014, actually. But back to the story. Imagine you're a journalist, and you discover that these corrupt practices are happening, and you think that people should know about it. You might get fired, 
well, you will be fired if you report on it in the Arab world. But worse stuff can happen too. You might be accused of destabilizing the country. You might be accused of being a terrorist or supporting a terrorist organization materially and get jailed for it. You might even be jailed for something completely ridiculous like being a homosexual. All of these things have happened to just one journalist in Morocco, by the way. This isn't even a number of stories, this is one story. It's important to state that we're not talking about this happened once in 1996 and whoa, it was weird. We're talking about this happens week in, week out in the Arab world, across the Arab world. This is actually mild because you're talking about property theft. In some countries, it's actually people losing their lives. Some people are literally losing their lives and some people are thrown in jail for 10 years or 15 years. So this is the region where this kind of stuff happens routinely and there's no due process. There's no equal application of the legal system. Some people are above the law and some people literally are the law themselves. And your best hope is to stay quiet and hope nobody ever gets upset by you. And even then, you might get unlucky and the problems come looking for you. So in this kind of region, you're never really safe. And that's why people are leaving it en masse by the hundreds of thousands. Even people who aren't currently living in a war zone want to get out. Because how can you raise a family in, in this kind of country? How can you have a business? Talking to friends and family who are mostly in the Gulf region, the majority of them are looking to emigrate in one way or the other. The majority of them are freaked out. We can't build a life here anymore. We can't plan one year into the future, let alone a generation into the future and they're looking to leave. They don't know where to go, but they're looking to leave. And this is, this is unsustainable. I mean, so long the region itself is uninhabitable. I'm not talking just about war, but I'm talking about all of this real devaluation of human dignity. So long this continues, of course, people are going to try to leave. I have a cousin in Libya. He doesn't even live in the more unstable parts of Libya. It's a fairly stable part of the country. But he's been saying for a few months that he wants to try his luck with the boats and see if he can make it to Italy which is basically, you know, playing roulette with his life. And my family are really worried about it. But at the end of the day, what can someone like me say to him when I grew up in the UK? I got a great education. I can work, I can make money, and I don't live in a war zone. So that's it for this episode of the Arab Tyrant Manual. Thanks for listening. You can download the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and by searching the Arab Tyrant Manual in your favorite podcast app. There'll be a transcription available on the Arab Tyrant Manual website soon. And of course, we're listening for feedback and ideas. So tweet at us and we'll get back to you. And we'll be looking for uh, episode suggestions from you as well. So if there's a, a topic that you think we should be speaking about, please let us know. This is Iyad al-Baghdadi and Ahmed Gatnash, and this has been the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast. يا مصطفى يا كتابا من كل قلب تألف ويا زمانا سيأتي يمحو زمان المزيف يا مصطفى يا كتابا من كل قلب تألف ويا زمانا سيأتي يمحو زمان المزيف